0: Knowing how
1: to invest your money is harder than ever before. Dealing with stock market volatility,
2: record debt, and terrorist attacks requires new thinking. At U.S. Asset Management, we can help you see the world more clearly so that you can move beyond the chaos and invest with confidence. Call us, visit us online, or drop by our office. U.S. Asset Management, helping you make better decisions with your money.
0: Hi, everybody. I'm Christine Dolan, and this is our author's bookshelf interview with author Scott McKay. But we're also going to include it for Election Watch 2024 because his book about racism, revenge, and ruin, it's all Obama, came out last November. Mm -hmm. And in light of everything that is going on in the Joe Biden administration, the Joe Biden campaign, we don't know whether Joe Biden's going to make it, and we don't know who may step in, but uh, Scott has some interesting theories about this. So, <laughs> Scott, first of all, welcome to the show. This is going to be fun.
2: Yeah, thanks for having me, Christine. And, and we're recording this on Tuesday. Happy Mardi Gras to you. Um, oh, happy,
0: happy Ash Wednesday, too. Yeah. Well, yeah,
2: that, that that that's less happy than Mardi Gras, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it's great to be with you.
0: Okay, so so let's start from the beginning. What made you go back and re-examine uh, Obama's narrative about his life, the books he wrote, uh, the Good. story he put forth, the the body of work? Uh, and I mean, wh- why do this now? You, it came your book came out in November, but I think it's very timely in, in terms of you know everything's falling apart in the Democratic sure. Party right now. Well, so how you did you know- this begin?
2: I had written back in 2022, I had written a book called The Revivalist Manifesto, which was sort of a, an examination of the conservative movement and the history surrounding uh, surrounding that. And, you know, w- what's it going to take to get America back on its feet again? Um,
0: and this and is it, based upon the premise that America has, I, I don't know, it's certainly shifted. Very quickly. Yeah. Well, you know,
2: if you're if you're a Gen Xer like me and you grew up in the 80s, um, you know, the standard for when you kind of came to to uh, to political sentience, for lack of a better term, is, you know, the late 80s, the end of the Cold War. Right. Which pretty much was the zenith of American um, uh, cultural, political, economic uh, power. And, you know, we've seen that. Kind of melt away over the last, you know, thirty years and and change, um, and that's been accelerating really since the mid aughts, let's say. Mm-hmm. And so, after having read that, you know, written that book, um, uh, the publisher Calmo Press came to me and said, "Would you be interested in in doing a book about Obama and the effect that he's had on uh, American culture and and sort of." bringing to bear the need for a revival. And, you know, the more I thought about it, the more interesting that topic was to me, because the fact of the matter is, uh, America is by no means the same country as it was in, say, 2006 or 2007, before the rise of Barack Obama as a major political figure. And you can make the argument that he has been the most influential, consequential figure in American politics over the course of that time. Um, And there's an enormous amount of uh, culture, politics and economics in this country that is totally different and not as good. Most of which, you know, the American people did not vote for in any major way. Um, And, you know, the book explores uh, through some pretty uh, painstaking and not that much fun research, uh, the different ways that Barack Obama has affected the fundamental transformation of the country uh, that he promised back in 2008.
0: Oh, he definitely promised it. That was, I remember him walking out on stage in Chicago saying, you know, after he won, that this is going to be the fundamental change. The time had come. And then, you know, most people didn't didn't understand right. his point of view. Um, but people thought, well, you know, now's the time to, to elect somebody, you know, who, Represented a younger generation, and also represent. He was. He was. His mother was white. His father was black. And you know, let's get on with let's get on with the you know 21st century. But in your book, when you go back and you examine it now, Scott, you know, it's one thing when you elect somebody who's new. It's another thing when you look back on history and say, what exactly was this that hit right. America? Because as you say. Right now, and I'm not saying every poll that's out there is correct. I, you know, I'm, I'm this is too long for that, right. but fundamentally, people are unhappy. Yeah, you know, and and then again, people voted for Joe Biden. You know, a lot of people didn't like um, Trump's personality. They liked his A lot of people liked his policies, but how, but we inherited when we when we got Joe Biden, we got Barack Obama on steroids. Don't you think?
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, if you'll remember, look, both of these two, Obama and then Biden, got elected on fundamentally a bait and switch operation. Joe Biden ran as sort of this known commodity. He was a moderate, a centrist. He was going to bring America back to a sense of normalcy. Um, And instead, you got the most left wing administration in American history. Um, You know, similarly, Barack Obama ran as a racial healer. Right. And, you know, you can go back every June. I think they still do it. Gallup does a survey of race relations in America. Um, And in June of 2007, just before Barack Obama became uh, a major political figure in America, I mean, the the race relations in this country were at a zenith. It was something like 75 percent of the American people thought racial race relations were good. And the vast majority of us looked forward to a time when race was no longer really much of an issue in America. And, Obama and, we, ran and out,
0: yeah, and then we found out that if you didn't think it was more of an issue, then you ended up being a racist. Well, that's so true. Like 20, sure. So by 2020, if you didn't look at color of anybody's skin and you looked yeah. at them for the merits that they are in contributing to a job or a corporation, all of that was off.
2: Well, and and it's it's so tragic because I mean, that was the value proposition of Obama, right? Was this is the guy that's going to make race go away. I mean, we, how can we be a racist country if we elect a, a black guy president? And I think there was a vast consensus to Martin Luther King's fo- fundamental formulation of, you know, a colorblind society, judge me by the content of my character and not by the color of my skin. I think a lot of people were really looking forward to Obama fully bringing that into fruition, and instead you got the opposite. You got you know critical race theory and DEI. You got the war on police and the cops are racist and all the rest of it. And like you said, now I mean, if if you espouse a colorblind society, they call that racist.
0: Um, so how did we? How did we miss? How did we miss that? Um Barack Obama was teaching critical race theory in 1994 at the University of Chicago Law School. Right. Well, how,
1: hey, did, how, well. did, how,
0: did, how did, you know, we, met, we missed, and people didn't want to report on this in 2008, that the ANC right. flag was on the parking lot in the polls at Reverend Wright's church. So tell us when you, when you went back and you did this, guy, Did you yeah. go in with an open mind of saying, oh, let's look at what he wrote, and let's look at what happened, and let's see the evolution of where we are today? Well, what I was curious about was um,
2: the relationship between the people who were Obama's mentors early on and, you know, like, wh- like what was this, the source? What, what was the wellspring of all of this fundamental transformation? Like, why was this necessary? This was the first American president who fundamentally disrespected the country as founded. Um, You know, obviously there was, you know, Woodrow Wilson and the Living Constitution and all this kind of stuff like that. But the fundamental spirit of the country was still at the forefront, even of the progressive uh, presidents, the FDRs and so forth. This was the first guy who came about this stuff from the standpoint of this place needs a fundamental transformation. Okay, not necessarily from the public sector that the country as a whole needed it. And when he said things like, you know, disparaging the bitter clingers with the guns and the religion and all this kind of stuff, like it was there from the very beginning. People wanted so badly to believe in Barack Obama, the racial healer, that they were okay with a few departures from that. And then the mainstream media really didn't want to cover it. So, but yet he comes in as president and, all kinds of different ways the country changes to something that folks have a hard time recognizing. So I wanted to go back and look, where did this stuff come from?
0: Um, so what did, you, what did you find when you went back? Cause because I remember okay. when we were all reporting at the time, we were reading Barack's books, which we right. I was dissecting dreams of my father. Um, and I found some glaring lies. Okay. That were in there, but you know, Talk about the people that influenced him, because it's important, yeah. you know, for people to understand why they should read your book. Right. So there's four
2: mentors to Obama. Um, the the first one that really gets very little uh, attention compared to what he should is Frank Marshall Davis, um, who is uh, Frank in Dreams from My Father. Right. He um, doesn't have a last
0: name in the book.
2: Doesn't have a last name. Correct. Mm-hmm. There's 22 references to Frank in that book. Okay, And some of the more poignant parts of Dreams from My Father are conversations with Frank. There's there's this scene, for example, after his grandmother, uh, who he's living with at the time, comes home and she's distraught because she's been aggressively panhandled by a black guy, you know, probably says something that's racial and it, it disturbs him. And so he gets in his car and he goes to this uh, kind of, funky area of Waikiki where Frank lives, finds him, you know, three sheets to the wind in his chair, uh, drinking bourbon. He pours little Barack a, a shot and, and then proceeds to basically tell him, you know, your grandmother's upset because she knows that black man has a reason to hate, hate her and, and, and act a certain way. And you're going to find that out and all this kind of stuff. And, and so and this, you know, who knows how much this book has been filtered through people with agendas uh, that want to tell the story a certain way. But the point is, even in in this sort of origin story, this mythology that Obama uh, established for himself, here is this figure who essentially disparages the American way of life. In fact... There is another scene right before he goes off to college where Frank tells him, you know, you're not going to to, off to college to get educated. You're going off to college to be uh, trained in the American way of life and all that S word. Um, And so this is the stuff that even makes it into Obama's book. Um, A lot of research has been done in the aftermath of Obama coming to, to the forefront into Frank Marshall Davis and who he is and what he's written. Um, And this is a guy who was almost certainly a Soviet intelligence operative. Uh, He was a committed Stalinist. He was a communist newspaper editor in Chicago and newspaper columnist in Honolulu, um, who basically was kind of run out of Chicago by the FBI in the late 1940s. Um, He actually appeared on the FBI security list for having taken photographs of shorelines in Hawaii, which kind of sounds innocuous, except at the time, you know, you, you get nervous about guys taking pictures of shorelines because, you know, those are beaches that the, the Soviets or the Chinese might ultimately be putting landing craft across. Well, it's um, the ones so that J- put him on the FBI J-
0: list. And <laughs> Japan bombed it too.
2: Well, yeah. And so, <laughs> uh, you know, you had all of this stuff A lot was made, for example, when Barack Obama uh, took office and immediately got rid of the bust of Winston Churchill. Um, And and this was assumed to have been uh, something that came from Barack Obama Sr., who was a Kenyan uh, um, nationalist or whatever, and and therefore an anti-colonialist. But what was missed... And what I, you know, I found reading some of Frank Marshall Davis's writings from back in the old days, is that that's a Davis thing. Frank Marshall Davis was as anti-Winston Churchill as you can get. Shredded mm-hmm. Churchill every chance he got in his columns. Um, he also went after General Motors, which is all but government motors now. After Obama got finished with it, there were so many examples of things that Frank Marshall Davis wrote in those columns. Okay? That ended up becoming policy when Obama was president that it's unmistakable. The book gets into are these
0: stuff are these columns that. that he wrote after he moved out cuz I know that he he was um, active in Before, South before House, and but... after both okay. in
2: Chicago and in Honolulu. Um you know, I mean this this guy was very prolific and he was very radical. And one of the consistent themes with Davis uh, is the use of race to indict America? Um, that this was fundamentally a racist country. I mean, he, you know, he made stupid claims like Russia in a generation had solved racism, uh, while while America was getting was like they solved racism. Half the country's in the gulag. What are you talking about? But this guy, he would write the, that kind of that kind of propaganda, and the, you know the obvious connection here is that from the time Obama was ten and was sent to see this guy. From the t- you know to the time he was 18 and left to go to Occidental, I mean this was a constant presence in his life, and he basically learned at the feet of Frank Marshall Davis, who was a race baiting communist of the Stalinist and Maoist school. Okay. Um, so do you th- do
0: you think that's the reason why Obama, of all the places he went to, he didn't grow up in Chicago? But do you believe? I mean, his mother was from Kansas, as I recall. Right. You know, right. he, he went to school in, in, you know, in the east Interestingly coast. Interestingly enough, on the west coast. But do you think that's the reason why Obama went to Chicago?
2: I, I think that had a lot to do with it. Interestingly enough, um, uh, Frank Marshall Davis is from uh, a town five or ten miles away from Wichita, which is where the Obamas' grandparents. I don't think they didn't know know each other growing up or any of that, but it's just sort of an interesting coincidence. What's what's maybe less of a coincidence is that in Chicago, Frank Marshall Davis was friends with both of Valerie Jarrett's grandparents.
0: That's interesting.
2: Yeah. Um, You know, and so but Obama gets to Chicago through somewhat of a circuitous route. Right. He goes to Occidental, which is in L.A., and then he ends up at Columbia. And then after that, he ends up in Chicago and at Columbia is where his and there's a really interesting conversation that Paul Kingor unearthed in in uh, in his writings on Obama with um, a guy who had had dinner with Obama uh, one weekend when he was at Occidental. And, uh, you know, the guy makes the statements like, look, uh, he was a committed Marxist Leninist you know, communist revolutionary when I had dinner with him. And that guy who has, you know, since become a conservative and Ken him have become very good friends. That guy was much more of a, uh, Frankfurt school, cultural Marxist, uh, you know, he, who had studied a lot of this stuff and had realized, you know, that old school Soviet communism stuff is not going to work. Um, and so he credits himself at this dinner. Like I think I turned him toward more conventional politics rather than, you know, getting a gun and starting a revolution type socialism. He goes to Columbia and immerses himself in that uh, Frankfurt School cultural Marxist Alinskyite community organizing version of socialism, which he you know fast forward a bit is what the Democrat party is today. Okay. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is a party that is a collection of radical urban socialist machines in the cities um, that, you know, they draw money down from the federal government to replace the tax base that leaves uh, when they don't run a city, the way a city ought to be run. Um, And, you know, that way you're able to, 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 Resource a hierarchical totalitarian, you know, socialist operation, which is, you know, go to Seattle, go to Portland, go to Austin, go to Chicago and you can see it. The money all flows downhill. There's very little entrepreneurship in these places that, um, you know, that are especially Democrat places in the cities. You know, I mean, the criminals run the streets and the government is, is really the, the, the last resort for law abiding people. And so everybody's dependent. Well, this is this is exactly the kinds of stuff uh, that Michael Harrington and, and Saul Alinsky and the rest of the community organizing left were, you know, writing about and percolating in the 60s, 70s and 80s. And Obama gets immersed in this when he goes to Columbia. Then he goes to Chicago and he's working essentially for acorn style organizations there as a community organizer. And he learns all this. And then I guess if there's a genius to Barack Obama, it's how do you apply this stuff to elected politics as well? And how do you how do you, you know, hook up a hosepipe of federal dollars into these organizations to fuel them so that they actually can control the streets. Um,
0: so who, who taught, who are the other three guys that you focused on in terms of mentoring? him? Well, like, I, should mention, I should absolutely
2: mention Derek Bell, who was his, his, his mentor at Harvard law school. Derek Bell is the founder of critical race theory. Um, and, you know, there's, there's, I mean, there's and a Obama, ton of stuff. Was
0: impl- Obama was implementing that in 1994, at least, because we know that the number two at United Airlines has bragged about the fact that he took his course.
2: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. When when Obama was was uh, was an adjunct professor at the University of Chicago, he was he was 100 percent teaching Derek Bell stuff. And then, of mm-hmm. course, the other two, Reverend Wright, everybody knows about um, <laughs> Bill Ayers. Yeah, Bill Ayers. People know about a little, but they don't really know the full extent of how important Bill Ayers is to this story. Um, there is a good bit of evidence that Bill Ayers was actually the ghostwriter for Dreams from My Father. Um, he wrote a uh, his own bio- autobiography, a, a book called Fugitive Days, which matches Dreams from My Father in syntax in the use of metaphors. I mean, it's they're very very. Very similar books. Um, So there's that. And then, of course, the other thing about Ayers is he's essentially the thinker on education who has redesigned American schools at the K-12 level to basically be woke indoctrination factories. If if your kid's school, you know, talks about things way more, um, uh, you know, that are social than reading, writing and arithmetic and you know, the pedagogy has completely changed from things that you recognize and so on and so forth. Well, guess what? That's all Bill Ray- Bill Ayers' writings that have created that. He was a, a very influential in the entire redesign of the Department of Education under Obama uh, toward all of these different things. And, of course, with the No Child Left Behind and, and, and other uh, Race to the Top um, federal education initiatives – Implemented this stuff by using a whole bunch of federal money to make it happen. And so that's gotten very, very little play. And it's unfortunate because, you know, people are, well, what happened to the schools? Why are they so different? And, well, this is, this was the mechanism by which it happened. And well, it wasn't,
0: it wasn't without a, you know, it wasn't without intention. I mean, no, absolutely. They, 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 they knew exactly what they were doing. Um,
2: mm-hmm. They just didn't tell anybody what they were doing. And so nobody paid attention, right? Um, and this stuff just, you know, there's a temptation, and this is, I, I, we're talking about education, but this is a very broad based thing. There's a temptation, it's like, well, this is just how things evolved. No, they were contrived and executed. And in the, the case of education, I mean, Bill Ayers literally wrote the book on how to do this stuff. Um, Obama denied he really had any connection to him of, of any meaningful nature at all. And, you know, he ghost ghost wrote his first autobiography. He put him on the Chicago Annenberg Challenge, which was one of these radical education projects that had an enormous amount of funding and basically put Obama on the map as a policy guy in Chicago before he ran for office. Um, You know, and then and then Obama gets elected president and he didn't bring Bill Ayers to the White House, but he took all of his writings and. Uh, and and turned them into reality So, you know, that's do,
0: it do you, do you know, Scott If uh, at the Obama Library, if there is even A recognition of Ayers or, or any of these guys
2: I don't, I would be surprised if there Is, because one thing about Barack Obama that I've noticed in all Of the research I've done, this is not A guy who comes clean He will tell you a lie And you know it's a lie, and he will continue To push the lie I mean, it's it's. I don't I don't know if I'd call that a talent or or what I would call it, but it's 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 something that most people can't do. It's yeah. What about? He's a a very good actor.
0: Did you ever ever um, see if there were connections between Bob Avakian, who's you know from SDS in the 1960s when Ayers was out there in the streets with Hoffman and everybody, was because Bob Avakian? Um, and I noticed that he came on my radar, not because I, I covered you know politics in the '60s by any means, but he came on my radar during 2020 when Black, it was after the Floyd killing, and um, Black Lives Matters was on the street. Washington had 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 a, a riot. I was right. watching TV that night and watching the T-shirts that said "Revolution, nothing less." And then I took and then I found out that they were connected to Bob Avakian, who's, you know, been looking for a revolution since the 60s. And he right. actually wrote the new social constitution to replace the U.S. Constitution. So he would have been of the Bill Ayer's generation. Mm-hmm. And they, he endorsed Biden in August of 2020. I, you right. know, And it was a reluctant type of endorsement. I mean, he wasn't going to endorse Trump. He didn't particularly like Biden, and he said publicly at the time, and I'm paraphrasing, that you know it was the best of two evils, but it, it, Biden was the shortcut to get what they wanted, and they 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 almost sound if you go through, it's forty pages, and I read it all, and it sounds like it is a mirror of what Klaus Schwab announced in right. 2021 with the Great Reset. Well, you
1: know, and, you no, no yeah.
0: private property. You're not going to own anything and you're going to be happy. And they don't believe right. in God.
2: Um, well, I, you know, those things have all been percolating
1: for you know, quite a Hello, while. I'm Mike Lindell, and I'm here to tell you about my new product from My Pillow: Towels that actually work. Watch this absorbency test. Here's another towel that we randomly went out and bought. Here's one of my towels with the nice design. I don't know if you can see this, but you could line a swimming pool with this. I mean, this is crazy. Get rid of it. Also, we have bath sheets, bath towels, washcloths, hand towels, and so much more. And the best part with your promo code, your entire order ships absolutely free. So go to mypillow.com or call the number on your screen. Use that promo code to get deep discounts on all my towels. And for a limited time, your order ships absolutely free. Um, and, and, you know, I, uh,
0: I guess my question is did, did, when Ayers is in the room with, with Obama. Does he bring any of these guys from the 1960s like Frank Marshall and other people in the room with him?
2: Well, uh, I mean, Davis was already there. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, Maybe the question is, you know, does Valerie Jarrett bring some of these people into the room? Um, Because, you you know, both of the grandparents or or the grandfathers rather were I mean, they were communist figures in Chicago. Um, and, you know, Valerie Jarrett doesn't get anywhere near as much scrutiny as she probably should based on the outsized influence that she had on the Obamas from day one. Um, so, I, you know, I, I, the, the, the name that maybe gives me a little bit more, um, you know, perks up my antenna is Michael Harrington uh, mm-hmm. than Ivaki. I, I, Ivaki and I, you know, of what I know of him is is sort of a, a theoretician in an ideological sense whereas Harrington was much more of an implementer um and you know Harrington is the guy who is credited with well he was one of the writers of of the great society for example you know and then and then denounced his own plan later by saying well it was a drop in the bucket and it wasn't enough and it's like well you know $18 Eighteen trillion dollars. I mean, you know, like maybe you could just admit it doesn't work, right? But these guys don't. <laughs> that. Um, but Harrington's. You know, this is all. It's it's a Saul Alinsky thing. It's okay. We're going to we're going to organize our constituencies into you know these rabid mobs that we're going to then you know we're first of all we're going to intimidate the Republicans into giving us something. Um, and then we're also we're going to outorganize the other elements within the Democrat Party. And, you know, this is how we're going to build an active ingredient in American politics. Harrington was very much along those lines. And this is the, the kind of politics that Barack Obama then embraced in full. I think some of these, you know, these other guys, and I think Ayers and, and certainly Davis from, from his childhood, kind of imbued him with the radical ideological piece. Um, but I, I want to say it was, you know, Harrington and, and then, you know, you had Francis Fox Piven and some of these other kind of socialist thinkers who were the implementers. Because Barack Obama is not a um, political theoretician at all. Pretty much everything about the guy is derivative of somewhere else. Where what Obama brings to the table that is different from other people, and it turned out to be um you know transformative in a really bad way for the country is you know changing politics from sort of that Clintonian attitude of hey, our ideas are better and we just got to out charm the other side, uh, to no, we're gonna actually turn elections into ballot harvesting competitions, which is where we are right now. Um, they've been super successful in making that happen, and you know that is, um, you know that that I think that's the the piece to Barack Obama that really gets uh, short shrift when people start looking into like who he is and what he's done to the country.
0: All right, Scott, I want to pause right here and take a break. All right, and come back and on the other side, I want you to talk about this transformation that has happened and the upside and the downside to it and where we are in terms of 2024. Okay, so we're back with Scott McKay, and I just want to say this is enlightening, Scott. I want people to get your book. I know it's behind you, but pick it up and put it right there in front of the mirror. It's, well, it's,
2: that's a poster board, actually. <laughs>
0: that's a poster board you've got. Okay, so yeah. the race, revenge, and ruin, it's all Obama. Um, Let's talk about the upside and the downside of this because I think, you know, if you take a look at sort of the temperature in America, people may not fully understand it. And we have to keep in mind that 75 to 80 million of Americans were born after 1990. So they did not even know the world you and I know right. pre internet. Um, right. They're getting out there and they're realizing that they can't find the jobs, they can't find a home, they can't buy a home. So it's all the the basics. And there were a lot of times I remember when I was younger and my parents would say, or friends of mine would say to me, you know, because I was pretty liberal, they would say, you Christine, when you get older, you're probably going to be conservative. And I have turned out to be quite conservative because I think that, you know, there's a, there's a level of greed that hurts people. Um, but is, what's the upside to, to, to you going back and reanalyzing this and, and how does it play out in terms of 2024? Because Michelle's name's out there. I, you know, I'm going to be hard-pressed to believe that she's going to jump in. But then again, you know, in the last three years there have been so many surprises. I guess nothing would surprise right.
2: me. Yeah, make no assumptions about anything where American politics is concerned anymore. Um, yeah. You know, from uh, an upside standpoint, one thing I would say is that Obamianism, for, to coin mm-hmm. a phrase, um is the death of Bush Republicanism? Um
0: That's interesting. Barack,
2: Barack Obama as a political entity is you know is like genetically engineered to do away with sort of that patrician uh noblesse oblige Mitt Romney style of you know genteel politics. Um and The the main reason for this is that an Obama Democrat doesn't believe in the same social goods that a Daniel Patrick Moynihan liberal does, uh, and certainly not of a Bush Republican, right? Like, I mean, uh, they are they are they look at America as founded as a fundamentally
0: flawed, uh, undesirable place. Um, Why are they so? Let me ask you something because I'm interested in this, and when you in your body of research here. Why are they so hung up on America? I know what Avakian says, but what is the the Obama? Why do they hate America so much? Well, I
2: I think it's a race piece. You know, I think some of this is kind of, you know, I don't want to say Obama's daddy issues, but I think that um, the people who mentored Obama were, I mean, like the four big ones for sure were, I mean, they hammered on race hammered on it like all the time. You can't sit in Jeremiah Wright's church for 20 years and not have a, a, a real serious problem with America and particularly white America, the way Wright hammered away at white Americans all day long. And I mean, you know, there was that famous moment at the national press club uh, when, you know, after Obama had, you know, kind of tried to shunt right off to the side and say, well, he's my pastor, but, you know, I can't disown him any more than I can disown my kind of sort of racist white grandmother, and you know that whole thing he did in the Philadelphia speech. And Wright was like, "No, no, I, let me tell you what what this guy learned in my church for twenty years, which is that the black god and the white god are separate gods, and the, the the black god is the god of the slaves, and the white god is the god of the slave owners, and never the twain shall meet." And you know that should have been a real eye opening moment for the american people um, Except say, for obama,
0: to, obama did what Axelrod did, did but he threw obama over the over the under the bus publicly right you I mean yeah.
1: yeah
2: yeah absolutely so okay that's it he's gone and the media let him get away with that when you know it was like no you can't throw away 20 years because this is part of you now is the way that mm-hmm. should have been covered and it wasn't um, and you know, so you had this sort of, you know, bait and switch going. That oh yeah, I'm the racial healer, but behind the, you know, behind the thing was was the ANC flag at the church, like you like you mentioned. So you had that. Mm-hmm. You know, Derek Bell was critical racist. This guy wrote a novel, the premise of which is like one of the craziest things you ever like. The, the aliens show up in a spaceship and they say, "Give us all the blacks, and we'll give you, you know, cold fusion and all this other stuff." And white America's like. Great, we'll do that right away. I
0: mean, yeah, it's very, it's very sick. It's very, well, and
2: and let me make a quick aside, okay? Because, you know, the Obamas got the executive producer title to this Leave the World Behind uh, movie Mm -hmm. that was on Netflix earlier this year, right? And so one of the premises of that book was, you know, racism trumps all, right? Like, um, if you've seen the movie, Mahershala Ali is this really rich guy who rents him this really nice mansion in the Hamptons. Um, and he shows up because there's a power outage in the city and he's, he's, you know, drives around his, his top of the line Mercedes. He's got a $5,000 tuxedo and he says, Hey, I'm the guy that owns the house. Here's a thousand dollars to refund you for your Airbnb for the night. We need to rack out in the basement. Racist Julia Roberts is like, no, you can't come in. You can go to the most redneck backwoods place in Alabama or wherever. And if you, this guy shows up with $1,000, they're going to take his money and ask him if he's got the key to the liquor closet, okay? I mean, it's it's unrealistic, but this is the Obama world. They're the executive producers. And in the trade press, it comes out that the reason he got that title was that they gave him the script and had him make copious notes on it to provide more realism, right? And then there's another scene where Mahershala Ali's daughter's like, you can't trust white people. And especially, you know, especially now. And it's like race goes away in a crisis. People help them, you know, they help each other. Like we've seen that over and over again. But their mindset is totally different, right? The Obamas are, I mean, they see things through that prism and that prism alone. And when you start to
0: look at who the people were that influenced him coming up, it's that mindset. And of course, okay. So you're you're saying that he that he not only embraced it, but he's fostering it. well, I think him. he had no
2: choice to find this. Is like the this is the petri dish that he grew out of. He doesn't know anything else other than this. Um, and it's strange because you would think he would have evolved past it given all the advantage that he's generated from a mostly white country. I mean, this is a guy who is the quintessential. American success story from the stand. I mean, not exactly rags to riches, but certainly, you know, a, a, you know, a, 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 almost an orphan uh, from a, a broken home who kind of just, you know, came out of nowhere and turned into the most consequential political figure in America over the last 15, 20 years. I mean, that should be, a, you know, that should be a Horatio Alger story. And instead. Somehow it's, it's, uh, it's, it's a, an example of a racist country. So, so. Can't do really you, explain why, but I mean, that, that is, that is what we have.
0: So when you did your research for this book, did you find um, that Obama has an element of just severe anger towards America? Or is, is, really? I mean, does he really sincerely believe
2: yeah, America? I, I think the guy is, is I, I think the guy has an enormous amount of rage. Uh, toward America, I think it was covered uh, up by uh, by the media leading into his in- initial thing, and it, it showed itself over and over and over again. I mean, the 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 classic examples of these were these never-ending racial incidents involving police while he was president, um, and of course. There was the the even before that, you had the new Black Panther case, right? With these guys were holding uh, nightsticks in front of a, a polling place in Philadelphia wow. and yelling at white ladies, you can't come vote, right? It was like almost a Ku Klux Klan type of thing. And Eric Holder's Justice Department refuses to prosecute him, which was a little bit of a sign of what was to come. And then you had the Bill, the the um, not the Bill Gates, Skip Gates thing at Harvard, which was almost like a like a, a scene from planes, trains, and automobiles, right? Like the guy comes home, he either forgets his key or his key doesn't work in the lock or something, and he and the Uber driver are trying to break down his front door when the cop rolls up. It should have been something that everybody's like, okay, right, and kind of laughs about. It. Obama instead is like, well, this is a teachable moment because this is the way the police act toward black people
0: in America. Well, he does have a, He did have a tendency to um, when he when Obama was in the White House. He did. He had a tendency if something happened to completely generalize it as if this was something that happens in every never Right. Did, he, he did. He did do that. Um, well,
2: and, and he did it in a in a way that was calculated to generate the kind of of animus and and chaos that ultimately came. I mean, you know, maybe the best example of this was the Trayvon case, right? Um, You know, the thing that nobody remembers about the Trayvon case is that there were no white people involved in that, right? George Zimmerman was Colombian, okay? He was a neighborhood watch guy. He's watching this kid run from the eaves of one house to another um, in a way that looks like he's casing houses. And it's like, why is this guy even out in a rainstorm? So he stops the kid, and he maybe shouldn't have done it. But the next thing he you know, he knows he's he's, you know, he's back down on the pavement getting grounded and pounded by a six foot, 180-pound athlete, um, you know, who's high as a kite, and he remembers he's got a gun in his waistband, and so he uses it. It's kind of a, yeah, okay, this is unfortunate, but this is probably what you would expect would happen in this circumstance. And it has nothing to do with race. And the next thing you know, and the case wasn't even a big deal locally in Florida when it happened.
0: Until oh, it's certainly, it's certainly turned into a, a
2: well. I a mean, Obama. You know, it's just well. If I had a son, he'd look like Trayvon.
0: What? So let me. So let me ask you this, because bringing this forward, um, Obama's passed the mantle to to Biden. Biden. I think Biden. Even for those people who covered Biden that thought he was moderate, um, have come to realize that no, this is not moderate. <laughs> Right this is not moderate yeah. liberalism okay, by any stretch of the imagination. What influence did you find that Obama may have had on Biden? Well, I I think it's total. I mean, I, the, the fact that
2: if you go through the inner circle of Biden, um, normally when you have a presidency of one party and then that party, you know, comes back either immediately following or after the other side gets four years or whatever it is you know, there'll be another presidency of that party and you'll have some holdovers from, you know, the previous president will come in. But it's always a mix, right? The new guy's going to bring his own people in and there will be, you know, somebody that was with him when he was governor or senator or what have you. And it's kind of this eclectic mix of people on that side of the political aisle.
0: He this does. Is I mean, my... but Joe Biden does. He has, t- he has uh, Kaufman. He has Bob Bear. He has Ron Klain. He has Tony Blinken. Well, yeah, but Ron Klein
2: was an Obama guy, though.
0: I mean, well, you, I, Ron you, you Klain know, well, was an Obama a,
2: he guy, a even devil. when he was Biden's chief of staff as vice president.
0: Well, you know? but Ron Klain has was up at the Senate Judiciary Committee. As I he, was. Left, he was years ago when when um, Biden was head of it. So, I mean, yeah. these guys have known these guys have known Biden before Obama ever showed up in 2004 in Washington D.C. Is my point.
2: Yeah, no, that's true. That's true. But mm-hmm. I, I would argue, and uh, in, in Klein's case, I definitely argue. Like he became an Obama guy uh, when Obama came around. Well, he became um, you
0: know, his. It was, was his drug czar for Ebola, Zika, whatever. You know, H one N one.
2: Um. Right. And uh, you know, then there's the the Lloyd Austins and the Tony Blinkens and the Jake Sullivans, um, and the you know the Susan Rices and the Samantha Powers. I mean, it is a you know long list of obama people who are you know arguably more important with biden than they ever were with obama um and it's it's a you know you know the other judge them by their fruits right i mean this is this is almost everything in the biden administration is a metastasization of things that were happening in the obama administration which is you know a pretty clear sign that there's influence going on i mean for example Um, You know, Obama's actions on the border uh, were, you know, super permissive until it was time to become the great deporter in advance of the 2012 election uh, Mm. so that he could wear that mantle. And then when he beat Romney, I mean, it was a wide open border that Trump took action to close. Biden comes into office and it's immediately thrown back open and has stayed that way even after it has become politically toxic for biden and in a normal political sense you would look at this and you would say you know shut the border right like get this issue off the table in advance of the election and like you know they wanted the senate republicans to give away the store just to do anything uh which is a pretty well much- they
0: wanted they 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 know it- They know that the the border situation is out of control, even though they told everybody two years ago, oh, no, it's under control. Right. So they lied about that. But now it's seeped out to Denver, Chicago, the rural areas in the Midwest, you know, the the rural areas on the eastern shore, New York City, you know, L.A. I mean, so and, and it's not a sustainable it's not a sustainable business model. Right. For immigration, and it's and it's a disaster. And if you're if you have a domestic or foreign policy where you're abusing people, you need to question, you know, what is really going on here. And and that's, oh, that's right. that that's I think finally, you know, I mean, the upside of that story is that let it linger for such a long period of time, and yeah. it's just burst wide open. Yeah, like and now.
2: yeah. Now now you're looking and at it's indefensible. It's indefensible. Well, right. But but what's so suspicious about this and what I would argue gives you a window into the fact that this is, um, you know, well, I would say this is this is Obama who's thinking long term. Right. Like This is demographic change. This is our people. We're going to like maybe maybe these illegals themselves never get the amnesty that turns them into Democrat voters. Okay, but they're coming and we're immediately hooking them up to the welfare system. Right. These guys get a smartphone and a check or a a check card. Right. Um, And so you've now you've done that. And what have you done? You have now indoctrinated. You've assimilated these people into the welfare state. Right. And the American welfare culture where everybody votes Democrat. And so, okay, fine. These guys don't actually they're not voters, but 18 to 20 years from now. Their kids who are born in America, they'll be voters, right? And so you bring 10 million people in and they have two kids apiece. And now you're looking at 20 million Democrat voters, which flips the demographics of the country in a way that creates that permanent Democrat majority that they've been talking about for 25 years. Okay. So whether Joe Biden wins re election in 2024, who cares? 20 years from now, this thing is going to be totally different. And so that's something that like Barack Obama, who doesn't even like Joe Biden, okay, won't let him shut the border, right? Don't shut the border. Long term, you're a hero. And of course, Biden, I don't think Biden's strong enough or, you know, knowledgeable enough at this point, given his mental state, to actually say no and and to do something about it. And Biden's guys are Obama's guys. So they see the big picture here. And I think that that, you know, is the sort of the, the an example of the tale that this thing uh, tells and what we talk about in the book is, look, these guys are doing things to America that um, transcend the political, you know, election cycles. These are fundamental societal changes. I mean, we could get into the, the war. They
0: they, they did. They have, they have both um, Obama and Biden are (laughs) taking actions to, They took actions in in the last month that Obama was president about gain of function. We now know it. Nobody was paying attention to it at the time. We also know that Obama made changes about class, about possession of classified information before he left office. I think that was December Mm -hmm. uh, of 2016. And we also know that Biden right now wants to pass legislation that the next president, whoever it will be, Cannot reverse some of the decisions and policies that he has in place. So yes, there is a trajectory of longevity for for how they look at if they don't if, if their if their guy doesn't win the race is what I'm trying right. to
2: say. Yeah, you know you you lock your changes into place so that it doesn't even matter who the next guy is, mm-hmm. and then you can pick back up after the fact and and you know keep the keep the show running. I, I think there's a there's a great deal of that and we saw it during Trump's four years with you know there we I mean, you saw that piece a few months ago about the 5000 deep state operatives that Obama embedded in the bureaucracy who what? fought tooth and nail against any policy changes that Trump tried to make while they were doing the whole fusion gps trump russia you know, that whole thing and using that as leverage to paralyze his presidency for two years with the Mueller investigation.
0: Well, and and they were very successful, what they did. And in spite of that, um, Trump was able to push some pretty significant, you know, policies forward. And, And I mean, I think it's if you go back to the, you know, the great question that Reagan asked in 1980 debate, are you better off four years? You know, I think it was 84 you know you're better off 4 years ago than you are today the answer is going to be overwhelmingly no right To right. most americans and that's that's why you well, know i don't think it, i don't think it's just age with with biden i think that that's just the that's the flower that's bloomed this week i think yeah, no, i think it's, it's overall policies
2: that, well that's the thing is you know then the reason yeah. this this pr campaign around bidenomics has been such a complete flop is you know i mean
0: You're
2: you're, you're pinning down somebody's leg and telling them it's raining. Okay, Mm -hmm. you you can't sell that. I mean, when when you know, three years ago somebody's like, "Okay, we're this close to buying a new house," right? And three years later, it's like we're never going to be able to buy a new house. Mm -hmm. Um, You can't come up like, "Hey, this is a great economy." Like, no, it's not. It's like stop Mm -hmm. lying, right? Right. Um, Right. You know, you you push an EV mandate that destroys the auto industry pretty much. I mean, I saw some well, of the not only not
0: like that, but nobody can afford not, not, not everybody you can't, afford, can't
2: afford used cars because you're not putting enough product into the market that people want to buy. Right. Yeah. Instead, it's EVs that are overpriced and nobody wants them anyway. Like I saw, I think GM lost one point seven billion dollars last quarter. Mm hmm. I mean, that's not sustaining, destroying the industry altogether. Well, with a destroyed car industry, that means that if you have a 10-year-old car, you're fixing that 10-year-old car because you can't afford to buy something else. And everybody in America's got this. Credit card debt is through the sky because everything that people buy is more expensive. And yes, it's the debasement of the currency, but it's also the restrictions on the productive sector. Right. Inflation is too much money chasing too little product. And when you come in with environmental regulations, when you've when you've hamstrung the energy industry um, and all of these other you know productive areas of the economy and you made it harder for them to satisfy the need of the public, you're you know, you're infl- it's not even just how much money you're printing that causes inflation. You have hamstrung your economy and demand outpaces supply. All of the, the housing restrictions that they've put in in all of these cities to keep people from building new housing, okay? Now you introduce 10 million illegals. Where's everybody going to live? That's why nobody <laughs> can buy a house. You have a shortage,
0: it's, and it's yeah. an made shortage. Well, not only that, but I mean it's it's a it's a complete lack of forethought and it complete it, it, the economics well, about most of this policy is is pretty
2: either either it's that and it could very well be that,
0: or you know, these
2: guys all went to Ivy League schools, they're smart. Okay. Don't automatically assume it's incompetence because it might be, no, you know, like if we if we make people Feel deprived, and then we offer them the government as an exa- as a as an answer to that because the private sector failed, right? I can create socialists this way.
0: So um, that's what you said that, okay. So that's what you think. So let me ask you this because we're about to run out of time. What was the most surprising notion that you discovered when you wrote this book?
2: Surprising. um I think it was the the depth. Uh you know and I knew all of the different pieces to this but when I did the research and they all kind of came together as I was writing the book it's the level of weaponization and strategic weaponization of, of the government? government against the American people um you know and like a a good example of that is, is so Obama goes into office in 2009 And it's immediately, you know, bailouts all over the place and government intervention in the economy. And you had Rick Santelli go on uh, CNBC from the floor of the uh, Chicago Mercantile Exchange and, you know, starts the Tea Party movement. Right. And in 2010, Obama takes, in his words, a shellacking in the midterm elections because of the Tea Party. Immediately after that, you had Lois Lerner in the IRS go in and gut all of these Tea Party organizations with audits and every other kind of government harassment that they could do. And they basically took the Tea Party out as an organized political movement so that they weren't able to coalesce around somebody as a presidential candidate in 2012 and offer up the kind of politics that would beat Obama for re-election. And instead you get Mitt Romney Right, who is the quintessential Bush Republican and the easiest guy on earth to run against? Um, you know, and so in other words, it's like they didn't mind completely breaking the compact between the people and the government in order to get elected in the next cycle. Like they, they, they didn't, that they wasn't even a speed bump. Well, maybe we shouldn't do that. No, it was full speed ahead. And you saw this again and again and again. In all of the different ways that Obama and his people sought to victimize and marginalize ordinary Americans, the bitter clingers that he that he you know, that he so disparaged before he got elected. whether got, it was The guns
0: in God's God. crowd.
2: Yeah. I mean, you know, it was it was, you know, the fundamental transformation of the military. Look at this. this I mean, you can't so, even put so people is in the, the military now because the kind of people that join the military are like, I don't want to join that organization. It's woke. Right. That that, you know, that's that's a Biden thing. But it started when Obama was president. OK. And I mean, you know, the war on faith and the war on cops that we've already kind of touched on all of these different things. As I'm writing the book, this is all coming together. I'm like, I am mean, this is this is not an accident. None of this is 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 just, well, they did all these different things. No, this is a cogent strategy for making America totally different than what it was when he found it. Um, so, and really, so that
0: is why people need to buy your book because Absolutely, you, you will it, not understand this Until policy. you see
2: it laid out in front of you And once you do, you'll never be able to unsee it At least I certainly wasn't
0: Alright, ladies and gentlemen Go out, buy this book It's important, especially in 2024 Racism, Revenge, and Ruin It's All Obama by Scott McKay Scott, thank you very much And we will have you back
2: Thanks, Christine, have a good one
0: Thanks okay. <laughs>
1: yes. That's my cat. No. Yay. whoops we rolled these back up.